This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Gosh Pods. Over the next few weeks on Gosh Pods, we're going to be exploring topics within anaesthesia and pain medicine. I'm back again today with Dr. Helen Laycock for part two of our episode on acute pain in children. So Helen, in last week's episode, we discussed a bit about incidents of acute pain, consequences of pain, and why it is so important that we identify and treat it. And we also touched upon some of the challenges of pain management in children. So today I was hoping we could explore pain management in a bit more depth. So thinking about a surgical patient, we could break down their hospital journey into three stages, before the surgery, during the surgery, and after the surgery. And I thought we could focus on how to optimise pain management at each stage. So starting preoperatively, we discussed risk factors for pain in the first part of the episode. If we've identified a high-risk patient at this stage, what should we do about it? Well, I think ideally, I think even before we identify them, we should be screening for it. So I don't know whether we always, you know, check what medicines children are on before they come for surgery. And I would say if a child or young person is on long-term non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, that means they've got pain before surgery. And we really need to think about that because sort of the surgery is like an extra pain that they're experiencing. And so we need to know what their sort of baseline pain is so that we treat that and then everything to treat their acute pain goes on top of that. So we don't sort of presume that this, you know, ibuprofen 10 milligrams per kilogram they take three times a day and have done for five months will be enough to treat pain after an appendicectomy actually that's their baseline that they have for their arthritis and you know they need something more on top of that and also it's identifying perhaps drugs that we're not as familiar with or haven't really thought about so you know are they on things like gabapentin pregabalin amitriptyline which are antineuropathic agents are they taking tramadol are they taking opioids preoperatively i mean and if you've got a patient who's a sickle cell patient, is this a patient who actually has acute crises really regularly and so therefore has morphine frequently? And so therefore we know is going to be a little bit more tolerant to having any opioid after their surgery. Those kind of things are like, for me, red flags that I would want somebody, if they've noticed that, to pick up the telephone and contact the acute pain service in their hospital to say, I think there might be an issue after the surgery. Can we have a discussion about this? Often when teams phone our acute pain service with that exact question, we know those children, we've met them before. Sometimes we see them in our chronic pain clinic, but often we've looked after them from operations that they've had with us previously. And that information is so important. So we can prepare, we can phone the family. We can say, don't worry, you're coming in for surgery. But we know what happened last time. We're here to support you. And just those really simple conversations can help families feel safe about coming into hospital. And so often it's that psychological safety that a child who's had a poor pain experience needs to feel like it's going to be okay. And is there ever a role for psychologists preoperatively to manage anxiety? I think it depends what we're talking about. I think if we're talking about 
anxiety around the perioperative period in general, it's really important to get psychology involved. And pain may be a sort of contributing factor to that, but may well not be the whole, you know, the whole reason for it. Often there's so many other extra things that are involved in perioperative anxiety. And I know that you're doing a podcast on that and I'll leave that to those experts. There is a huge, huge need for psychologists as part of the acute pain team. And there's a work going on, I would say, internationally at the moment to try and evidence that. So we know that in adults, the inclusion of a psychologist as part of the acute pain team can really help with return to function quicker and reduce need for strong pain medicines. We have very little evidence about how that helps in children, but we do know how important psychologists are to pain management in general in children. And so therefore, I would think there's certainly an important place that they play within the multidisciplinary team. I would suggest that most hospital services are not funded for pain psychologists to be involved preoperatively. But I think with really tricky cases, those are the kind of things that we need to discuss as a multidisciplinary team, not just the pain team, but the surgical team, the psychologists, the, you know, all the other healthcare professionals, the GPs, the family involved in that child's journey. Yeah, sure. Moving on to intraoperative care, how can we optimize our analgesia intraoperatively to try and minimize any postoperative pain? Well, it was something I thought about in quite a lot of detail when I first came to Great Ormond Street as a fellow. And I sort of came to the hospital and was often doing anaesthetics for operations. And I wasn't quite sure what the operation was. I was probably doing well if I knew which part of the body it was in. And I certainly hadn't got a clue on how that child would recover. And so the only way I could kind of make myself feel better about the whole thing and plan was going back to sort of basics and going back to what I would say are first principles of pain, physiology. So I thought about the pain pathway. And so I thought, well, where does the pain start? Where does it go and how is it processed? And in simple terms, it's your peripheral nerve is stimulated that goes up through the dorsal root ganglion into the spinal cord. There's lots of connections that go on in the spinal cord. Some of them ascend up to sort of the thalamus and the higher cortical centers. And then there are also descending pathways as well. And these descending pathways then interact at a spinal cord level. And either you get dampening down of this pain signal coming in from the periphery, or you get the enhancement or what we call facilitation. So if you've got all those aspects of the pain pathway, fortunately, we know there are different receptors that work at all the different stages of this. So the way I sort of try and think about it is, how can I choose medicines that act on different types of receptors at different parts in that pain pathway that all have slightly different actions? And that's because what I'm trying to achieve is something called multimodal analgesia. So everybody talks about multimodal analgesia, but it's important to know what that truly means. And when we're talking about medicines, it was a term coined in the early 1990s by a surgeon called Henrik Keller, who realized that if you give lots of medicines that have different mechanisms of action, what they often work synergistically together. 
So they enhance each other's action as far as dampening down pain is concerned, which means you kind of need less of each medicine. If you need less of each medicine, you're less likely to get side effects because the lower dose of medicine you give, the less likely you are to have a side effect from that medicine. But also because they work on different receptors, what you find is their side effect profiles are different as well. So you're at less chance of getting side effects in general. But also if you do get side effects, they're probably a lot less debilitating than they would be if you've just got, say, a high dose of morphine. So that's what I'm trying to do is use medicines at as low a dose as I can to avoid side effects that work together synergistically. So in simple terms, we know that if you have paracetamol and ibuprofen together after surgery, you need less morphine than if you have paracetamol and morphine alone or ibuprofen and morphine alone. So we know that paracetamol and ibuprofen work synergistically. And that makes sense because they work on slightly different kind of pain pathways. You know, non-steroidals work on your COX system to do with prostaglandins and inflammation, whereas paracetamol, no one really knows how it works, but it might have some central action on sort of COX-3. It might have some action on endocannabinoid systems. It might work on some descending serotonergic or noradrenergic pathways. So already we're seeing that two medicines that have slightly different mechanisms of actions work together to reduce the amount of opioids you need. And that's the kind of way that I think about it. I also know that any reasonable surgery will cause severe pain. And we know that the evidence is that if you have moderate severe pain, the best medicine for that is an opioid. And so I know that most young people I am looking after will need to have an opioid within their perioperative journey. Doesn't necessarily have to be a high dose if I give other medications with it, but I think I have to acknowledge that that is the gold standard medication for moderate to severe pain. But how would I then reduce that? Well, as I said, it's thinking about medicines with lots of different actions. As an anaesthetist, I need to think about things right from when that child goes off to sleep. So, you know, there's a huge role for regional anesthesia, be that central neuroaxial blockade or be that sort of peripheral nerve blocks. And it's really become something important in the anesthetic curriculum that we all should be really proficient in. But actually, we should be thinking about it for every single child who comes into surgery. What can we block? Where can we use local anesthetic? Who's the best person to put the local anaesthetic in? Is it us at certain times? Is it the surgeon at other times? You know, it's useful to evaluate that for the different surgeries that are happening. And then what medicines am I going to give? So, you know, the simple analgesics, paracetamol, ibuprofen, opioids, and then are, are there any other extra adjuncts? And that becomes a lot more complex. And I think that's a podcast in itself. But I'm thinking about are there extra medicines I can add in like ketamine, or alpha-2 agonists like clonidine or dexmedetomidine, magnesium, lidocaine infusions. But I think they're very much sort of higher level conversations to be have looking at the child themselves and their risk factors and what medicines work for them. But that's sort of what I'm thinking inside the operative time. Yeah, that is quite a logical way of thinking about it, I suppose. And yeah, I'm very used to the term multimodal analgesia without actually ever really considering what we mean by that, I think. Moving on now to post-operative care, is there like a gold standard for how to assess paediatric patients, how often we should be assessing them for pain? So interestingly, 
there sort of is and there isn't. As with everything I seem to have said, there, there sort of is an answer, but there's not an answer because we don't have enough evidence. Thankfully, there's been a reasonable amount of work looking into pain assessment in children. It's very challenging. And I think we need to acknowledge that. It's really hard to work out whether a child's in pain and also differentiate it between general distress and also, you know, upset that comes alongside perhaps being separated from the parents, perhaps not being able to move in the way that you'd want to, being attached to lots of lines and tubes, all of those things. I think what we know is the best way to assess pain in anyone is for them to self-report, so for them to tell us what they're experiencing. As I said, we know that pain is a complex biopsychosocial experience and whatever the patient says their pain is, is what their pain is. And we sort of need to step back and appreciate that. It doesn't mean they need lots of strong painkillers. They might need lots of different strategies to manage their pain, but it means that they're experiencing severe distress and we need to manage that. So when we think about self-reporting in children and young people, we sort of suggest that children from about, well, the literature says from about four years upwards, it depends on the four-year-old, I would say. But certainly a child can tell you if it hurts or not. We might need to think about the language we use, whether, you know, it is the word hurt or pain the right word for that child? Do they understand what that means? You know, some toddlers would say an owie or, you know, they they have different words for it. So I think it's often about talking to the parent to find out what word's the right word. But allegedly from four years upwards, children can rate their pain in intensity out of 10. So using numerical rating scale. That does require the child to understand numbers. So to understand that five is more than four and that eight is more than two. And not all four-year-olds understand that. But once you're getting to about seven or eight, many young people can actually differentiate that, understand the kind of incremental nature of that type of scale and be able to give us a number. If children can't, there are some other validated pain schools. There's the faces scale, which is where you show young people a, a face that sort of goes from not looking very happy to smiling. We've got to be a bit careful with that, though, because often children think that that's assessing how happy they are. So one of our pain nurses here at Great Ormond Street, Becky Saul, talks about when she went to see a child and the child was rating sort of the sad face constantly but they didn't think they were really in pain. And she got the child to go through the faces to say what each one meant. And sort of the really sad face was like, well, daddy's not coming today, so I'm really sad. And actually, that's what they were saying. It wasn't that they had loads of pain. So we can use these other methods, but have to be aware of sort of their limitations. There's one called pieces of hurt, where you give children different tokens to see, and they They've got a total of five tokens and they give you how many tokens out of five it hurts. There's a pain thermometer as well, which is quite a nice sort of visual aid where it, when the pain's really bad, it, the thermometer's really, really red. That's sort of a colour aid as well. But often there are children who can't use those methods to express their pain to us. And at that point, we would go for more behavioural assessment tools. So the one we use at Great Ormond Street is called the FLAC tool. And if you go onto our electronic patient record system, it's actually in the flow sheets and you can score it by 
clicking on it and it tells you what each of the scores are and how to score it. And that looks at behaviours of the child that would suggest that they are in discomfort and in pain. There are more complicated versions of this for intubated patients in the critical care environment. In NICU, we use a specific one called the comfort tool. So there are a number of validated scales out there, but ideally what you want is the child to tell you themselves. What also is important is to have sort of corroborative histories from the parents as well, because they are the child's best advocate and they know their child better than anybody else. And we'll be able to tell you whether this behavior or this kind of reaction is something that they would see in their child if they experience pain. Those are the best ways to assess it, but it's really difficult. And it's something I think we all need to acknowledge is we all find hard. Yeah. And then when it comes to managing breakthrough pain postoperatively, I appreciate it's going to differ quite widely on a case by case basis according to, you know, the, the child and what medications they're already on. But do you have a kind of general principle for managing breakthrough pain or a resource or trust guidance that you would recommend for going about how to manage these cases? We do. Our acute pain team has produced a really nice sort of pain ladder, which goes through all the different possible analgesics you can use and in which order. So we've got the long trust policy on the medications you can use, but also there's a really lovely poster. And I like it as well because it goes through simple things like how you should dose paracetamol in which age groups of children, which is something that you go to different hospital trusts and everybody does it differently. And the amount of people who come and do a list with me and say, oh, you know, do you use 7.5 milligrams per kilogram of intravenous paracetamol or do you use 10 milligrams per kilogram of intravenous paracetamol? And that's what it is really clearly highlighted in the analgesic ladder that was updated last year. So if you go onto the trust intranet, you can sort of pop that in and it comes up quite clearly. And finally, are there any new advances or treatments on the horizon or is there anything that we're going to be doing differently, do you think, in five or 10 years time with regards to acute pain? So I'd love to say that there was a new fantastic drug that was going to come out, but I've been doing pain research for over 10 years now and I haven't seen a single new drug really come to market. And if it if the drugs do, they come to market in adults. So it takes even longer for them to filter down into pediatric practice. So, you know, like the sea snails in Australia and the venom from poisonous spiders in the Brazilian rainforest that are being looked into at the moment to develop new drugs actually haven't come to fruition. They haven't really come to anything more than sort of the second stage of clinical trials. So I don't think we're going to have any new medicines. I think the real advances will probably be in predicting those that are going to have poor pain after surgery and predicting those that are going to get long-term pain. So there's a huge sort of amount of enthusiasm in the research community to find predictors of chronic post-surgical pain. And I'm hoping that that will come through into paediatrics as well, because as I said earlier, the drivers are probably slightly different in our patient population compared to adults. I think pharmacogenetics may well change things. We already test for those children who are at risk from sort of having gentamicin and 
whether we could start doing that kind of testing for a number of different metabolic pathways. So if you think about the cytochrome P450 system, that's a reason that we don't use codeine anymore because you have ultra metabolizers and you also have non-metabolizers. You know, is there a way of looking at different parts of the cytochrome P450 system to see whether people are susceptible to over-metabolize or under-metabolize drugs? There are some enzyme systems that we may well be able to look at genetic testing to see whether people are more sensitive to certain pain medications than others. So that's a possible way. And I mean, the real kind of pie in the sky would be, can we find a sort of black box that will tell us how much pain somebody's in? And I think that's both within surgery. So when a patient's under anesthesia, do we have sort of nociceptive measures? There's loads of different companies looking into it at the moment. So some are looking at heart rate variability, skin impedance, pupillary light dilatation. Could we do that on the wards? Is it applicable in adults? Will it even extrapolate down into children? Who knows? And do I want to know about nociception if I don't really think about the experience the individual's having that is different from pain? You know, there's all of these kind of complex things come into it. But if somebody could invent a machine that would give us a slightly different way of evaluating pain, that would be very helpful as well. And I think often that's helpful for young people and their families to make them feel validated as well if they have a specific number on a machine. Whether that's the right way forward, I don't know. But I think those are the three main things that might happen in the future. And I think we're just going to have to do more research into what drugs work best for what circumstances in children and not just extrapolate things out from adults. But that's sort of 10, 15 years away, sadly. Yeah, sure. Finally, I was just going to ask you if you had any take-home messages. So I think the main take-home message is children experience pain and it's very common. And that's not just in surgical patients, it's in medical patients. That's take-home message number one. Number two is you need to assess for it. So I assess pain, one, to see whether pain's there, and two, more importantly, if pain is there and I give a treatment, has it made a difference? And I'm not suggesting, as we talked about earlier, like going from a pain scale of 10 to a pain scale of zero, but you know, has what I've done made a difference? And I think that's something we don't often do as doctors. We don't often go back and see whether what we've done has made a difference. So probably pain's common and we need to assess it. And I think they're my take home messages really. That's great. Thank you. That's been a really fascinating talk about an area that I thought I knew a bit about, but actually it's thrown up some new things for me to have a look at. So thank you so much for coming and talking to me today, Helen. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gosh Gas Pods. In next week's episode, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Grant Stewart, a consultant anaesthetist at Gosh with a special interest in rare diseases. He's going to be talking to me about his approach to safely managing children with very rare diseases for their surgery. The team at the Gosh Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as hear your suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on Gosh Pods. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Or you can visit our website at 
gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. Thanks for listening to Gosh Pods and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.